We pray that our hearts would be bowed before your Lordship and our minds would be open to further comprehend your glories and that our uh, affections would be stirred to deeper love and appreciation and motivation to share the glories of the great gospel. We pray that as your word goes forth, however small, however marginalized the remnant that yet remains is, we pray that the light of Jesus Christ would shine brighter still, even in the darkness. And that like a city set on a hill with bushel removed, the light and the glory, the knowledge, the power, the truth, the saving work of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed and magnified and the lost might be drawn unto salvation. We thank you that you have revealed yourself on the stage of history from day one, all the way through today, and you as the architect of all things, the author and finisher not only of our faith, but the creator and sustainer of this world, have revealed yourself, Lord Jesus, beyond anyone's excuse, even in the things that are made. We thank you that your revelation does not stop here with the natural realm, but also has included these precious words that we behold today in your great book of self-revelation. The special revelation of our God is truly our bread, is truly our living water, and to it we cling for our understanding and for our hope and for our joy. And so we pray that today you would tie us ever tighter still to the message of Christ revealed in your holy word and that it would equip us to glorify you more fully and completely with a track record of obedience increasing with our sanctification to world yet lost and dying. And finally, we pray that if you give us any opportunity that we would be ready and able by the Spirit's work to share the gospel to the lost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege we have to turn to the Scriptures today and to worship our Lord by beholding Him revealed in His Holy Word. We are in Genesis, our Genesis series. Turn with me to chapter 8. We will overlap with a bit of our text last week and chart some new territory into chapter 9. 8.20 through 9.7 in the book of Genesis will be our primary text today. The title of this morning's sermon is Pillars of the Earth. This language, uh, you might be familiar, is there's a, a novel written, I think, in the last century under that title, but uh, long before that, there were phrases in Scripture itself where that language comes from. The analogy of the supports, the stabilizing factors, the basic foundation stones, if you will, of the earth are in view, and that language comes from the Psalms. We'll touch upon two verses in a moment. Suffice it to say that God is the stabilizing force of the earth. He has established and maintains its pillars, so to speak. This is evident in the context of Noah and his occupation of the world after the great flood. The aim of this morning's message is to isolate pillars of the earth, if you will, or in said another way, to isolate basic created order principles necessary to honor God in His world. These are evident at the formative moments or the threshold moment, as we considered last week, of Noah exiting the ark to inherit the new world. Would you stand with me once again as you're able out of reverence for God's holy word and let us consider these scriptures together. Listen as the word in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 7 is proclaimed in your hearing today. Here is the infallible word of the Lord. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall come upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Finally, verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As is testified to in our worship text earlier this morning, psalmists, Asaph, and others through the ages have celebrated the theme of our text today. Asaph writes in Psalm 75, 3, When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars, say law. In the perspective of that verse, that is God, Yahweh speaking in the divine first person, if you will. Listen again. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars, say law. If there was ever a time in recorded history where the earth tottered, it was at the great flood of Noah. Yet its pillars were not totally, did not totally collapse. The Lord steadied the pillars of the earth. He maintained His created order through His provision and His means of salvation, the ark and the seed of the future species Noah and his seven family members and so forth, he retained these elements as a stabilizing force, as holding his hand on the pillars of the earth to continue his purposes for creation. Again, we read a similar theme of a similar theme in Psalm 104, 5. Here the psalmist proclaims, quote, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Again, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. We recounted this same theme in Psalm 93 recently as well. It recalls Genesis 8.22 in our text this morning. While the earth remains, the Lord says, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The forces of nature, the pillars of the earth, the foundation stones of reality as we know it, they are sovereignly set and maintained by our Lord. We noted further in our last message of which our message today expands upon, we noted that there is often a silver lining in the judgments of God. A silver lining of judgment is that the beauty of God's law shines forth as the veil of obfuscating sin is forcibly removed from a culture. When God's judgments come and the veil of obfuscating, that means shrouding or denying or uh, recasting um, 
allowing a deception or, uh, or fomenting a propaganda campaign to obscure the truth. When judgment comes, it has an effect of sovereignly tearing away those layers of man's obfuscating sin. And once again, the law of God shines forth. In the great flood, we see this happening. This world had been ridden with sin. It was corrupt and depraved. But the law of God shines forth once again. It wins the day. It is the hero in the end, the Word of God and, his, uh, and, and God Himself in this great account. In the time of Noah, the following can be said. In the great flood, the world has been stripped down to its constituent elements by the judgments of God, serving to illustrate, here's a complicated term we'll explain, irreducible complexity of the created order. I'm going to say this phrase again, or this sentence again. I spent some time thinking about it. In the great flood, the world has been stripped down to its constituent elements by the judgments of God, serving to illustrate the irreducible complexity of the created order. What happened at the great flood was everything was destroyed except the bare necessities, if you will, the necessary constituent elements, any one of which would if it was removed, uh, the whole would be unsustainable. This is the idea of irreducible complexity. It's often used as an argument against gradual evolution, Darwinian evolution. That is to say, um, how uh, in the example of a mousetrap, let's say, is a mousetrap a mousetrap without a spring? No. A certain minimal necessary elements must be there in order for a mousetrap to be a mousetrap. It has to have a spring, has to have a clasp, has to have a base, has to have a bait, you know, bait, and so forth. And with those elements there, the basic necessary elements, this can be referred to as a functioning mousetrap. So to the tune of maybe five or six elements, there is a certain irreducible complexity to that instrument. Well, one might ask, what is the irreducible complexity of the world as we know it, of the natural order, of the created order of things? Well, if you go to the great flood, and you see how the destruction has wreaked havoc across the face of the earth, you find the irreducible complexity, if you will, of natural systems and society itself in the account of Noah. You need at least a pair, of male and female, of each of the kinds of the species. What does this tell us? The kinds of the species do not develop from a single common ancestor all the way back to an amoeba. No, that is a different worldview. It also tells us that you need a family. As we noted before, every beast and every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families. Society is, can be reduced to a family, but no smaller. Without a husband and a wife procreating, that is, being fruitful, multiplying, having children, then humanity is doomed. Humanity must have functioning families in order to sustain itself, in order to continue. To continue. And so you see... But the principles aren't limited to biology, these couple examples that I've given you. They're also illustrated in our text today with spiritual realities. In other words, there is a basic order for civil government that is given. Mankind in a post-fall world is not sustainable without certain principles, certain laws, without certain revelation from God's Word Himself. And so we see that in our text as well. We also see that mankind's state is not sustainable without a sufficient sacrifice, which is pictured in Noah's sacrifice. So that's just an overview of our theme today. 
Consequently, the repopulation of the world does not commence with multicultural pluralism. All these are sinful obfuscation, popular ideas, philosophies that we see today. There is no such thing. There, it, multicultural pluralism does not make any sense in the account of Noah, wherein different nations proceed under different gods, ethical theories, worldviews, and philosophies. No. At this time, after the great flood, there remains one God, one unified extended family under Him, led by the Lord's servant, divinely appointed for the calling, namely Noah, whose very first act in the new world is a public worship service and ceremony wherein he acknowledges the grace of God and His governance over the entire world. These are the basics of reality. We may deny them, but we are fools. The perspective of the great flood allows us to see the basic constituent elements of the nature of things, biologically, spiritually, and otherwise, across the board. Noah, think of it, Noah has just witnessed a transnational, that means a multinational across the whole world, all the peoples of the earth, Noah has just witnessed an act of judgment of grand scale by the mighty hand of God and the creator of the world. Surely the last thing on his mind is a vision to go forth and pioneer a neutral society where the sacred and secular coexist indifferent to each other under the standard of some humanistic ideal. It doesn't make any sense in the account of Noah. No. The world command, life resumes on planet earth after the ark lands with a public worship ceremony that glorifies God. And there's a reason for this. That's an overview. Let's get to some specifics. Here's a heading. The order for God's world featured upon Noah's occupation. So the order of things, the order of creation is featured in Noah's occupation as he crosses the threshold of the ark and enters the new world. And we'll consider four points of order of God's world this morning. Number one, worship of the one true God. Number two, the natural order of things. Number three, civil government divinely instituted. Number four, the cultural mandate. These are points of order in creation that are featured, that are prominently featured on this occasion in our text today. First of all, the worship of the one true God. Verse 20, chapter 8. So Noah exits the ark. What does he do? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then this communion, as we mentioned last week, this covenant relationship is seen unfolding. Verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, you see there's an interaction between the faithful servant and the sovereign Lord. The Lord smells this pleasing aroma, the sacrifice is pleasing to Him. He says in His heart, that is the Lord speaking, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Thus illustrated in this post-flood, this first public act, after Noah crosses the threshold, is this point of order the worship of the one true God. A just society, a reality rightly understood, the proper order of things cannot function without an acknowledgement of the one true God. If there ceases to be worship on this planet, things will fall apart. God's judgment is all that will remain. As long as there is a remnant, there are those who acknowledge that properly, in the order of things, we are designed by a sovereign God to give Him glory, to lift up His name, to acknowledge His presence, to acknowledge His power, 
to acknowledge His favor, to acknowledge His salvation, to acknowledge His Son. And all ought to acknowledge Him. All must acknowledge Him. And if they don't, they will suffer the consequences. This is the message of ultimate judgment. The flood in Noah's day speaks to ultimate judgment. The Bible goes on to profess that every tongue shall confess one day, every knee will bow, everyone must. It's a command, honor, affirm, acknowledge, submit to the God of creation, the God of redemption, the Lord of the judgments of the earth. If you do not, you are out of order. And as such, you will be judged one day, just like the pagan peoples were in the great flood. It is proper to recognize that in God's order for His new world, the first act, the priority is the worship of the one true God. This was a public profession of faith. For all the world, the remaining world to see, Noah sets up an altar, a place of remembrance, a commemoration of the sovereign intervention of God Himself in the salvation of His people and the furtherance of His purposes. He sets up this altar right there and, set, and takes some of every clean animal and he offers them as burnt offerings. There is a public profession. What if you were telling this story to future generations, this account? What details should be included as the account of Noah is relayed to future peoples, to children and children's children's children and so on? Would it not include this very first act in the new world? Would that not signal some importance? Yes, indeed it is. Many people are familiar with the story of Noah's Ark. It's popular even in our culture. It's sort of a fascinating uh, uh, story, even to unbelievers, although they might put it in the category of fantasy or nursery rhyme. It nevertheless gathers some attention. It captivates the imagination of our, of our culture. However, if the story is not included with the priority of the worship of the one true God, it is not an account that is accurate. If it's just some fanciful tale of a big boat with a couple of giraffe heads sticking out the top of it and a smiling guy waiting for, you know, this fun little voyage and land on the deal like we saw on our flannel boards, you know, in uh, Sunday school growing up, then we have missed the point. The very first point uh, of importance after Noah leaves the ark is that God must be glorified. He is worthy of our praise and without Him, there would be no salvation. There would have been no future for the world, for humanity, for the land creatures, if God had not sovereignly spared the future uh, in this ark of salvation. Secondly, in this act, we see a atonement for sin is pictured. Noah built an altar. He took some of every clean animal, clean, clean referring to proper sacrifice, one without spot or blemish, one that is sacred, set apart, blameless, sinless, as it were pictured in this act of sacrifice. This speaks to atonement. There would be a lamb to come. You know his name. Young people in this room, who is the sinless and perfect lamb of God? Jesus Christ. Young people, who was the one who pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God? Who said that? Not David. Someone else, before Jesus entered his ministry, preceded him and said, behold, the lamb of God. Who said it? John the Baptist, that is correct. When John the Baptist pointed to Jesus Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, he was pointing to the sinless, perfect, clean, if you will, sacrifice. This picture of atonement 
preceded Jesus in picture, type, shadow, prophecy, ceremony, all the way back to the Old Testament. And this was one of those moments. Noah took of every clean animal, signaling that a clean, a substitute, a perfect sacrifice must be offered in order for there to be true atonement for sins. And here we have the gospel, front and center, featured in the new world. The gospel is a foundation stone for the order of things. The gospel, the unambiguous acknowledgement that a substitutionary sacrifice is required for the forgiveness of sins, was the very first act in the new world that Noah commenced to obey. This is the founding principle of this new nation. The founding principle of this new nation, this new world that Noah inhabited is the unambiguous acknowledgement that a substitutionary sacrifice is required for the forgiveness of sins. This is basic. This is foundational. This is a pillar of the earth. This is priority. This is a superior constitution than our own. The degree that our own constitution has any merit, it is rooted in this constitution we see right here. Again, we're reducing things to their constituent elements. There is irreducible complexity that is illustrated in these events. That is to say, the atonement of Jesus Christ, symbolized here, prophesied here, the gospel itself must be core, basic, foundational, front and center. It is the principal foundation stone upon which a just and glorious future can be built, and it is the only one. We, brothers and sisters, saints, members of the household of God, Christians in the long line of God's revelation, we are a gospel-first people. We are a gospel-only people. We are a people who recognize that the gospel is priority and anything virtue, of virtue or value stems from its root or stems as a branch or fruit from that root in the message of God's salvation through His self-revelation, through the Holy Scriptures revealed in Christ. Any uh, legit nation, any well-constituted people, any well-ordered society will be a gospel-first people. Now, what if we find ourselves in a nation that is not a gospel-first nation? What if we find ourselves in a culture who is denied that the gospel is a pillar of society, a pillar of the earth? What ought we do? Well, we are strangers and aliens to some degree in a condi under conditions like this, but we stand for the truth. We don't capitulate. We don't compromise. We don't back down. We don't change scripture. We don't interpret it through modern eyes. No, we proclaim the truth. We publicly profess in our confession of Jesus as Lord what Noah once did. And by God's grace, he may just use that to bow hearts that are pagan yet today before the truth that no well-ordered society is built on anything less than the foundation stones of the gospel. The atoning sacrifice satisfied not by government, not by elected officials, not by the will of the majority, not by humanistic ideal, not by natural law, ultimately speaking, but by the word of God revealed. The creator has the right and he has asserted it to order and organize how we ought to live our lives. It's called his law. It's called his word. And if we do not take it seriously, we are denying a fundamental principle of order that applies across the board and we will suffer the consequences. Worship of the one true God is absolutely central to this new world, and it is a foundation stone, a principle, a pillar of the earth that Noah affirms. Now, there's a third element under this, worship of the one true God, which is namely the Word of God Himself, the covenantal Word, you can say. 
The Word of God comes by way of covenant, and we'll pause on this note and pick up at a later time. Suffice it to say, there's several references you can study in advance on your own time. Chapter 6, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And thus proceeds information along these lines. And then more precisely, this covenant is revealed upon the landing of the vessel. Chapter 9, verse 8, the Lord said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That is to say that the worship of the one true God, central to that is his word and his covenant. That is the terms and conditions of his relationship where we are in good standing with him. It's absolutely fundamental. The order of God's world upon Noah's landing on Mount Ararat was uh, attended by this public profession of faith, the acknowledgement of atonement for sin, and the word of God revealed in covenant terms to him and to his family. That's point number one. The order of God's world featured Noah's occupation worship of the one true God. The second point is natural order. Notice in chapter 8, verse 16, something we've already read. Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son's wives, your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds, animals, creeping things. He says to me, um, that they may swarm on the earth in verse 17 and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So again, studying the basic principles of the order of God's world, created order, we see there is natural order pictured in this. That is to say, God has designed the kinds across the landscape of the land creatures as we encounter them. And because God preserved them according to their kinds, thus we see this beautiful diversity in the natural world even today. This has worldview implications, but more than just the creatures, we find some other natural order of things that is evident at this time. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So again, a principle, a pillar of this new world is the fact that God has ordered creation according to His terms. He designed the living things according to kinds, and He sustains the climate, the environment, the ecosystems of this world according to seasons, according to cycles of summer and winter, day and night, and so on and so forth. And these things are a principle of the created order. And yes, there are worldview implications. I've written down a few. Let me just read them for you. The major events of Genesis structure proper worldview categories for the Christian. The major events of Genesis provide a structure for worldview categories for the Christian. The creation, the fall, the flood, and here we have the flood. So what are some of the worldview implications for what we read today? Well, note at least the following. Number one, science is not the study of undirected causes in a universe of absolute chance. But instead, science proceeds according to the presumption of order and events, ultimately discernible as they stem from God's superintendence. Again, science is not the study of chaos. Science is the study of order. Uh, there is a famous apologist, uh, David Wood. I heard him in a debate once, and he made a profound point. He said that science only proceeds if you assume three things. Number one, there is order to discover. Number two, we are the type of people that uh, can discover or understand that order. Number three, there's value in understanding that order. Again, there is order to be discovered. We are the types of creatures that can discover it. Number three, there is value in it. No science proceeds 
without assuming those three. They may deny it with their lips, but, they, but all science proceeds assuming those three things. And that only makes sense because of the biblical worldview, because of the accounting of Scripture as we've read today. Number two, the so-called Cambrian explosion, uh, explosion. Anyone heard of that? Well, on Darwinism, there's a real big mystery in the fossil record because you go back to a certain time in the fossil record and you see all this diversity and it's so hard. We search and search and search and we can't find the common ancestor we know must exist. It's called the Cambrian explosion. It befuddles the minds of scientists who hold to a different worldview. This so-called Cambrian explosion is accounted for not by an unexplained anomaly in the process of macroevolution, but instead by kinds of all land creatures leaving the ark in pairs. That's the explanation. Jumping right out at us from Scripture. Right here. Number three. The genetic continuity across the human race is not due to a shared non-human ancestor, but a human family tree branching from eight original flood survivors. Mark my words. As genetics continues to develop and as we continue to sequence the gene code, you will find more and more evidence in the scientific realm of exactly the accounting here. Number four, the radically diverse and dramatic geographic features of the earth are not due to minute processes over indefinite time like billions of years, but instead they are the ubiquitous evidence of global catastrophe via the great flood. You look at, we've mentioned this in prior weeks, but you look at the evidence of the flood, it's all around us. Only the spiritually blind cannot see. But as we open the Scriptures to Genesis 8, 7, the whole account here, it is obvious that the natural world testifies to what Moses recorded. Number five, the similar cultural histories and common mythology of ancient peoples are not explained by shared imperial influence by a pagan superpower at the time, but instead speak to a shared experience inhabiting a post-flood world. As as you study anthropology, you can see that the flood stories abound. Nearly every ancient pagan culture, if we have the records, speak to a great flood. Why? It's because the common experience in reality in history itself. Number six, social structures, various cultures, governmental, governmental institutions are not all equally meritorious or valid. That's what multiculturalism holds. It's not true. As they did not arise spontaneously in an ethical vacuum, rather they are to be measured by the prescriptive standard of special revelation issued to man's original dominion agents. That is to say, the principles that we're studying this morning in the context of this, of this passage, these pillars of the earth, they are the measuring stick whereby all other means of organizing society, all other governments, social structures, cultures, and the like are to be measured. That is a worldview point we take from our text today. And finally... Religion in its truest and most basic expressions does not stem from human ignorance or arbitrary cultural identity, but from divine revelation, either affirmed or perverted. That is to say, man has a sense of the divine because it is written on his heart, according to Romans 1 and 2, confesses these types of things as well. There is a sense deep within that man is accountable to a sovereign God, and he either suppresses that truth in uh, wickedness, or he acknowledges it by affirming God's word is indeed the accurate accounting of things. Thus, the order of God's world is featured in Noah's occupation. And what are the pillars of the earth? Worship of the one true God and the natural order of things. And we've read of that and its implications this morning. Thirdly, civil government divinely instituted. So a pillar of the earth is God's principles for how to order our affairs. 
after we inhabit this post-fall world in a post-flood situation. Notice, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them in verse 9, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. He goes on to say in verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So what is illustrated here? Verse 6 says a little more clearly, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What we have here are principles of civil government. I see here that this will be a means whereby God will preserve the world from falling into the same level of depravity that preceded this time. In other words, God is instituting principles whereby the otherwise unchecked depravity of man's hearts will absolutely destroy a people, a civilization, the future of the human race. And one of these principles is that a murderer is deserving of death. And God has instituted a human agent to act on his behalf in this regard. That is to say, in this most basic form, right, irreducible complexity, we learn that the civil government is an agent of justice. It is a ministry of judgment. It, to a limited degree, as God prescribes, is given the charge of maintaining His law with regard to crimes such as murder. So we have a principle here. We also have a special revelation foundation for this principle. You know, how do we arrive at a governing principles? Well, people these days say, we arrive at truth by the will of the majority. Is that the case? What if the majority votes for something like killing everyone of one race because we don't like the color of their skin or because we deem them to be wicked uh, due to the way they look? This is something we all call evil these days, even in our culture today. So it doesn't follow then that if the majority votes for this, it makes it right, does it? No. The people, uh, the populace, are not God. They do not establish right and wrong by their own will. There is only one God. That's a principle of the created order. And worship of the one true God acknowledges that He alone tells us what is right and wrong. Principles of just government are revealed by special revelation. There's another alternate theory out there because a lot of times Christians are ashamed of appealing to the Bible in the public sphere and they say, oh, natural law is sufficient to order our affairs. Is that the case? Is natural law a sufficient judge and a sufficient arbiter of ethics whereby to order our affairs? Well, the account of Noah says no. God revealed specifically the principle of capital punishment for a capital crime, citing the instance of murder. In this most basic, irreducibly complex moment, we have by special revelation the ethics of an almighty God given, prescribed to man. Remember, this is mankind reduced to just eight people. This is how I want my world to be ordered from now on. That's the context of what's going on here. This isn't one among a bunch of competing government philosophies. This isn't, you know, one example in history of a political philosophy that we learn about in an interesting history course stacked up among a bunch of others, you know, the Hittites over here, the Assyrians over there, the Babylonians and this part of the world. No, this is God himself revealing to mankind and all of mankind will go forth from the seed of Noah and his family. This is the way I want my world to be ordered. It's a special revelation foundation. We contrast this with the insufficiency 
of anything less as, how, as a theory for how to order our affairs. We also see that this capital crime of murder as an underwriting principle of the role and jurisdiction of civil government provides us something of an understanding of how we ought to organize our affairs. The government is not first and foremost a ministry of mercy or compassion, but instead one of judgment. The church, the people of God, are a ministry of mercy and compassion and so forth. This has implications across the board, and when they are confused, <clears throat> things fall apart. We can't get into all the applications today. Suffice it to say, we have principles here from which a godly society is ordered. Now, the ground for this is the image of God. Whoever sheds man's blood, uh, by man shall his blood be shed for... God made man in his own image. So um, I'm sort of fascinated. One of my hobby horses is to study uh, kind of uh, um, prototype societies, if you, if you will. It's sort of fascinating to me when a small contingency breaks out from the conventional governments and decides, you know what, we're going to go try something new. We're going to order things according to a different set of principles. There's a number of these that crop up from time to time. Uh, Gulch Gulch was one in Argentina where a bunch of libertarians went over there and they decided they're going to create this you know, uh, utopia around uh, libertarian ideals. It fell apart in maybe, I don't know, two years. There was another one down in Acapulco, Mexico, and uh, they still host you know, yearly a conference called Anarchapulco, and it's sort of a refuge where people who like to do pot and other people who come speak on political philosophy can come and whatnot. Well, the leader of that group was killed in a uh, violent... Um, uh, murder last year. Uh, anyways, there's another one that's doing better than these two right now in New Hampshire called the Free State Project. I was listening to a guy who was lecturing there. We're doing a, his podcast there this week, actually this morning, and I couldn't help but give you this illustration. They were discussing abortion, and to the credit of the guy speaking, he was standing firm that abortion is absolutely wrong. Well, at the end of his appeal, there was a question in the crowd, and, it's, and the person said, what is it what is different about the nature of animals and the nature of humans that makes murder wrong? Young people, can you answer that question? I mean, this is some low-hanging fruit. What is different about the nature? Yeah, Jace. Animals don't have souls. Animals don't have souls. That's correct. Theo, do you want to add to that? Animals are not made in God's image? That's correct. The difference between Human beings, and so the answer, by the way, that the guy gave as a non-Christian was the potential for self-actualization. The potential for self-actualization, what does that mean? I, I, no one's really quite sure, but he said, as soon as an animal can advocate for uh, rights, then we ought to give that animal rights. Well, see, the answers like this are pretty convoluted, and unfortunately, his strongest argument for the, uh, for the immorality of abortion was not featured in his appeal. What is the strongest argument? It's right here in our text. What is the difference between man and beast? God made man in his own image. Therefore, it is a capital crime to kill mankind. Therefore, it is immoral. It is against God's law. It is a horrible crime, and it is a crime of classic example given as a principle of civil government right here at the formative moments of the new world and Noah's experience. This is why it is right and proper that the church, without compromise, ought to proclaim that abortion is murder in all cases because why? Man is made in the image of God. 
in that way, there is a sense you could say an assault on man, an unjustified assault on man, is an assault on God Himself in some sense. So here we have the order for God's world featured in Noah's occupation in the worship of the one true God, the natural order of things, civil government divinely instituted, and finally we'll close with the cultural mandate. There's a commandment again, God blessed Noah and his sons, chapter 9, verse 1, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He goes on to say, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. He goes on, but you shall not eat uh, the flesh with its blood, at, or the, you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So these are instructions for stewardship of the earth. He goes on in verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, which means increase greatly, and multiply in it. Be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth, increase greatly in it. We refer to these commandments as the cultural mandate sometimes. And it is the very first commandment given to Adam and Eve in almost identical language. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is a basic principle. This is a pillar of the earth. If Noah had not obeyed this command and his family had not obeyed this command, would you be here today? No, you would not be here. You owe, in part, by God's grace, uh, your existence right now to the obedience of your forebears to follow God's command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. I wonder how many, and as looking back, we can sure be thankful, but I wonder how many of us think the same way about future generations. It is, after all, a standing command, a mandate for us that we follow in the footsteps of this commission as Christian people that God gave His original agent here, Noah and family, at the landing of the ark. There is a blessing attended to fruitfulness. It's sad in our day because fruitfulness is often considered a curse. Fruitfulness, fertility, is often considered a disease that must be treated. We create so-called medical treatments to uh, interact with this or to interrupt this in many and varied ways. But listen to the way uh, God speaks of the blessing of, of future children. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You cannot separate blessing and fruitfulness in the order of God's creation. This multiplication, this privilege to fill the earth, it is something that is a commission, a commandment, and a blessing. So remember that and dare to be different. There are many big families in this church that always warms my heart when I think about it. And I'm sure a lot of you get the uh, curious you know, questions from the public as you bring your, you know, kids in tow, some of your moms are superheroes, you can wrangle eight kids, seven kids in Costco, get in and out of there and somehow get your shopping done, and uh, things that make fathers just quake in their boots at the very thought. God has given you grace to do that, and as you do so, it is a testimony, and it is in accordance, it's a way to apply these words, to consider children a blessing. And as you mothers have brought forth children into this world, it is a testimony to a great blessing that God has graced you with. Of course, we live in a fallen world, and this principle is sometimes interrupted with providential hardships in certain circumstances. We can all acknowledge that. Suffice it to say, understand, it is a basic creation order principle that fruitfulness is a blessing 
and a commandment, and it's given in this context. Be fruitful to multiply and to fill the earth. Now, Danny asked me an interesting question last week. He said, you know, what if, uh, some people surmise that there might have been about seven, eight billion people on the world at the time of the Great Flood. I'm, I'm not sure uh, exactly, I, no one probably, you know, can know, but as an estimate, perhaps that's the case. And some wonder if there isn't a sort of symmetry now or now that we're reaching seven or eight billion, perhaps the end is signaled again. So Danny kind of said, hey, why don't you spend some time thinking about that? So I was thinking about it this week. And then it occurred to me that there was a commandment to fill the earth right here, fill the earth. Fruitful, multiply, team on the earth, increase greatly in it, multiply in it and fill the earth. And it just led me to ask this question. What if the eschaton, that is history itself, is somehow tied to obedience to this command? Could it be that God is holding out until the earth is filled the way He intended? And if that is the case, I encourage you to do your part. And I know that many of you are, and that's awesome. So let's go, let's just review quickly and we'll close. Pillars of the earth, order or uh, principles for a creation order that are featured when things are reduced to their basic elements as Noah crosses the threshold of the ark to enter into the new world. Number one, the gospel, the worship of the one true God. Number two, the natural order of things maintained by his sovereign hand. Number three, principles of organization within society, even civil government, whereby we act rightly according to his law. And number three, the cultural mandate to go walk in a manner, as we see in the New Testament, worthy of our call. And one example here is given of how to obey God's purposes for us. Again, we are seeking to isolate basic created order principles necessary to honor God in His world. Let's close in prayer that we might glorify Him as Noah did in offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. Dear Lord, we thank You for the principles in Your Scripture that are life and health for us and that return us in our attention and correct our thinking to the standards that you have established and set in stone. We thank you that when the earth totters, you steady the pillars of the earth. We thank you that the created order is in your hands, and the propagation of the species ultimately is in your sovereign control. And we thank you for the glorious privilege of participating in your will for this post-flood earth. We pray, Lord, even as the floods once covered this earth, that your glory through your people's proclamation of truths like this would now cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, proclaiming, magnifying, championing the glories of our God who holds this world in the palm of His hands, who has ordained the end from the beginning, who sustains us, and most of all, as we consider our own salvation, has provided graciously in the death, the shed blood of His Son, means for our own escape through the waters of judgment unto the population, occupation of the new world one day, the new heavens and new earth. For these things we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.